I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Clara Souza Silva. Clara, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Now, you are an astrophysicist. Um, What is that? An astrophysicist can be many things. Uh, We all study space to some extent. My specialty is quantum astrochemistry, which is when you look at the specific parts of space that are very small but very universal. So specifically, I look at the behavior of molecules when they interact with light, no matter where in the universe they might be. And I specialize in trying to detect the molecules that may be associated with life on the atmospheres of planets orbiting faraway stars. Wow, that sounds really exciting. It is. What did you study to get into this field? So I knew I wanted to be an astronomer from a quite a young age. And so I worked towards that goal from about the age of 12 but I didn't really know what bit of space I wanted to focus on, nor did I have the skills to make an informed decision. So I went to university and did a physics and astronomy degree and an astrophysics master's. But then when I got to the PhD level, um, I by then knew enough to know I wanted to understand alien planets. And so I presumed I would have to contact scientists doing that sort of work already. And I did. I read their papers as best I could. And I told them, you know, I really want to work on this. And one of the wonderful scientists that I came across was Giovanna Tonetti, who's at uh, University College London, and who studies the atmospheres of alien planets. And when I reached out to her saying, I really want to do this work, she mentioned that, um, one, she didn't have any positions for me, but that Quite a few people in this field were looking at the atmospheres and almost no one was looking at the molecules that form those atmospheres. And that's where she really felt there was a gap. And that led me to working with Jonathan Tennyson, who is a quantum chemist, not an astronomer. And between the guidance from these astronomers and these quantum chemists, I learned about quantum astrochemistry and how to kind of use the tiniest things to answer some of the biggest questions. Cool. <laughs> and, and why do those chemicals matter? So there is something quite universal about the periodic table. You know, it, was, it feels, it looks almost like a human invention. You know, so neat. We have a table. We've organized them in groups. But yet, you know, these are the elements we find throughout the universe. And this feels so interesting to me that there's this universal physics in the universe. We can predict the physics of stars and, and space, but there's also universality of the chemistry. And so that is interesting. But now we know nothing about the rules of biology in the universe. We know the rules of physics are universal. We know the rules of chemistry are universal. So I feel like the next step is figuring out what are the universal rules of biology. And 
I don't think we'll figure those out in my lifetime, but I certainly would like to have a hand in in building that knowledge base. Okay, so you're looking for alien life, right? Ideally, but I mean, I'll take just knowing planets better. Uh, but fortunately, I can do both at the same time. Do you expect we'll find Mr. Spock or or something less exciting? Sadly, sadly, no. I, I, have, I have really no hope that I certainly have no hope that I will. But even we as a species, I don't have much hope at all that we'll meet the sort of alien life we could have, you know, over for a dinner party. You know, that would be wonderful. But I, I, I really think that's a, a statistical impossibility. I also think it's really unlikely we'll meet anything sufficiently intelligent and that we will be able to break the communication barriers and, you know, arrival style um, to even communicate, even if we can't interact directly with one another. Uh, where the odds get a little bit better is when we lower our expectations to just finding life of any kind. And even then, I don't think will be life we can pet ever. I think there will be most likely an enormous biochemical incompatibility between us and any life that we might find. And the odds that we are poisonous to one another are very, very high. So I would like to lower these expectations from Spock to just some pen pal to a pet all the way to alien life we would have to observe and study from afar. But that's still cool. That's still cool. I always say that when when we do find alien life, we'll probably be a bit disappointed as a species because everyone does expect Mr. Spock, but it'll probably be something like slime mold or, or like you said, something really incompatible. Yeah, poisonous alien grass is, you know, the best. And I mean, that would be very sophisticated stuff. I would not be disappointed. And I think it is partially our failure as science communicators that we have set the bar so high that you're right, people will be really disappointed when if we find toxic alien grass. And that's really sad because that would be incredible. Uh, so I haven't figured out how, but it is my plan as a science communicator to get people to be excited about potential alien fungi or something of that level. Fungi, they're fun. <laughs> now, why, why did you turn your eyes to the sky? as a young person? I just thought it was this incredible source of kind of passive power. This notion that you could just know the heavens without leaving the earth felt so different from other forms of power that I'd been introduced to as a child. You know, kind of military power, colonial power, capitalist power. These are things I vaguely understood as a, uh, as a kid, but this idea of knowledge that you can't apply, knowledge that you get not from exploring directly, but from looking, it felt so advanced. It felt so much more futuristic than anything I could build. Um, and I've since become really enamored with the notion of what we can discover without going, what, what we can do without sampling. And I, I, I like that very much. Obviously, a lot of the great work done on Earth, and the most laudable work done on Earth is very much not of that ilk. Um, 
and I'm extremely thankful for the people who sample things, <laughs> but um, that felt so appealing and so transcendental as a kid, and it still does. It's almost poetic the way you describe it. <laughs> it feels poetic, and when I struggle with my work, which is 99% of the time not poetic at all, I do try to think back to that, you know, when I'm doing really boring quantum chemistry and I'm struggling with some supercomputer and thinking, why am I spending so many years of my life on like this one molecule? I try to think this molecule and the behavior that I'm describing is the same everywhere in the universe. And it's how we'll detect it without ever going there. And that is the tiny peppering of kind of inspiration that I need, tiny peppering of poetry that I need to keep going. Now, unlike a, a rocket, uh, most careers uh, tend to take a bit of a, a serpentine path to where you're, you're going. Um, has your career faced any setbacks or turnarounds or changes in direction? So I have the enormous privilege of uh, growing up in a scientific household um, that was not poor. And so as soon as I wanted to be an astronomer, my parents were able to support and inspire that desire with very little effort or sacrifice. And I am extremely thankful for that. And I'm thankful for not even noticing that was happening. And it took many years to kind of look back and reflect on that privilege. And it was only really in college that I experienced the first kind of overt misogynist um, attitudes towards women in science. Though later on, I did do the Harvard uh, unconscious uh, bias test and found that I myself had a small bias against women in science, which was disappointing, but sadly not surprising. I had um, moved up in the field watching an ever dwindling, narrowing set of demographics the further up I got. And so I'm not surprised I internalized some of that. But I feel like the most struggle I've had as a scientist has not been being a woman. It has been being an immigrant uh, by a long way. And being an immigrant in general is really hard. And uh, I can only imagine what it'd be like to be an immigrant who doesn't have my level of education or my skin color. But even so, as one of the most privileged and welcomed immigrants in the U.S., it is still a constant source of instability and stress and othering and feeling like I have to prove myself worthy to the government, the institutions, uh, the science in a never-ending trial that I will never succeed at. And that is, I think, the toughest. Um, but... Overall, I've been extremely lucky as a, as, as a scientist in my career, and I'm very thankful for the support network that's allowed me to mostly thrive. Wonderful. And I suspect that that's many, something that many scientists uh, struggle with, too. Um, like you said, viewing women uh, differently, at, especially at the upper levels, and um, the upper levels of, of academia tend to be very international. So I wouldn't doubt that many of, of your colleagues also have those feelings too. Indeed. Now with this uh, career of yours, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Some. Um, I would say none of them were discoveries that are mine. Um, I 
really reject the kind of lone wolf um, character in a lot of astronomy stories. And I get why they happen. Journalists find it very hard to write about a, an ensemble discovery. But I, I know a lot of senior scientists that promote the narrative as well. And so I will start by saying I, as an individual, have made zero discoveries. But as part of a team, there has been a lot of work that I'm extremely proud of. On the kind of purely scientific side, I dedicated my early career to just a single molecule, phosphine, this one. I know it's radio, but you can see it. And focusing on something so small and literally, but also small in terms of its importance. No one cared, no one knew about it, no one knew how to spell it. And yet I spent all of my 20s um, just focusing on this molecule. And so many times I thought, Clara, what are you doing? You're just answering questions no one asked. And there was so much of that. But if you answer a lot of questions no one has asked, then when people do ask, you're ready. And when a few years ago I was asked about phosphine as biosignature, because there was a chance we had detected it on Venus, we as a community. I was ready. I had done a decade's worth of work on this tiny molecule no one cared to ask about. And I hope there's a lesson in here for all the people who are frustrated in their research. It is very easy to know your research is useful if someone has asked for it, and it can be very hard to be ahead of that question, but it's so rewarding feels almost like magic to produce knowledge for knowledge's sake, knowing that one day it won't be just for knowledge's sake and there will be a legacy. And so I think I am most proud of phosphine. But in parallel, at some point in that frustrating path, I became so frustrated with the narrow demographics of my field that I had decided that academia and specifically astronomy was selfish. You know, I had dedicated so much effort and so many resources, not mine necessarily, to pursuing this love of space. And it felt almost indulgent, you know, when there were people um, fighting for, you know, better pedestrian routes and urban areas and and low-income housing, and I just felt, I felt like my pursuit wasn't laudable enough, and this was towards the end of my PhD. And so what I did was train to be a science teacher in local underfunded high schools in London, and I worked very hard at it, and I am now a qualified middle school and high school science teacher. And it was so hard. It was so, so hard, so much harder than quantum astrochemistry um, that I did return to academia, humbled, um, because I couldn't do it. It was too difficult, and I applaud any teacher, even the terrible ones, because they're all saints. Um, but I couldn't do it. But what I could do in those two years is get to know a bunch of really cool kids who had incredible, thriving scientific minds and no real outlet for them and produced uh, kind of a, a program and eventually a body of work that now exists. 
that I know most people wouldn't call a discovery, but it was certainly publishable research about the fact that children can do publishable research in astrophysics. And I think, I wouldn't say that was a discovery. I'm sure plenty of people knew this already, but it hadn't really been tried. Um, but it felt like a discovery, and it still feels like a discovery, one that I had to defend and present to cynics who think, oh no, children can possibly participate in my research, it's far too advanced. And uh, this still happens all the time, and I have to show them the now dozens um, of publications with children as official co-authors. And so I would say phosphine and getting kids to actually do publishable research, become active agents in the scientific community. Those would be my two biggest discoveries. I think that's amazing. And as someone who works with um, secondary and, and middle school students quite a bit, I can say um, you're probably safer with the toxic gas or, or grass. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it was so, it was the most physically demanding, the most intellectually demanding, the most emotionally demanding job I've ever had by orders of magnitude. And, and I wish I had the fortitude to stay, but I did not. I ran away to MIT and, and it was a sigh of relief. Um, my life became so much easier, so much better paid and, and sadly, you know, much more respected despite the fact that it was an easier job um, quite clearly an easier job and should have been clearly a less laudable job to be an astrophysicist at MIT than to be a middle school science teacher in a rough North London school. What are you doing at MIT right now? So I left MIT uh, a year and a bit ago, so I'm now at Harvard, um, uh, just the other side of the same avenue. It's, it's, it wasn't a big move. My commute actually got shorter. Uh, so at Harvard, I'm doing the same thing. I am still studying the quantum chemical behavior of any molecule that could be associated with life. And I'm still trying to figure out how to detect it, any of these molecules. And uh, my list is a little, a little over 16,000 of these potential biosignatures, of which phosphine is only one. Yes, my favorite, but only one. And so that's all my time is dedicated to modeling and understanding these behaviors and then trying to find them in space. And how do you detect them? So the general principle is that these molecules are far too small to see. In fact, even the atmospheres they're on are far too faint to see. And often the planets those atmospheres are on are far too faint to see. And so often all we have is the stars these planets are orbiting. And even then we get very little light from them, but we get some light. And once you get light, you can break that light apart into a spectrum, a rainbow, a fancy rainbow that covers not just the optical, the colors, but the infrared and the ultraviolet and all the colors beyond. And if we do that and we wait for the planet with the atmosphere and the molecules in the atmosphere to go in front of the light from the star, the light changes slightly. And it changes slightly because the molecules within those atmospheres on those planets around those stars absorb some of that light and absorb very selectively because the behavior of molecules is quantum behavior, meaning it's quantized, meaning they only absorbed quantized amounts of energy and these correspond to specific wavelengths of light. And so by looking the light from the stars 
And seeing what's missing, we know what molecules must have stolen. And if you know which colors each molecule steals, you know the molecules are there. So it's just this incredible game that you can play with space because space obeys the rules of physics and chemistry. And you can rely on that consistency, that constancy to figure out what invisible molecules are on alien planets. You're like the Sherlock Holmes of space. Exactly. Deducing life. <laughs> exactly. And you do get a lot of the, well, I don't know what the Arthur Conan Doyle quote exactly it is. I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, you know, when you exclude all of the possible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. There's a lot of that game. Now, your work sounds fascinating. Um, but one of my favorite parts of these interviews is hearing about things that happen beside the work. Um, usually field stories, but you can't really go into your field um, since you can't breathe it. Um, but, you know, things that happen in the office or working with children often gives you amazing stories. So do you have any uh, fun ancillary stories? Um, I have I have some stories for sure. Uh, I A lot of the work I did on phosphine was specifically trying to figure out where on earth it's produced to see if it was indeed produced by biology. And what this means, because phosphine is lethal, um, it wasn't going to be anywhere nice for me. So I knew places that definitely had phosphine and they were poisonous. Phosphine is used as a fumigant. It's also produced as an unfortunate byproduct of methamphetamine production. So if you run a bad meth lab, if you're in a good meth lab, you're fine. But if you're in a bad meth lab, you do produce phosphine. But I was planning to avoid all of these circumstances. Um, but the main evidence we had for phosphine being associated with biology is that it seemed to be present in the guts and excrements of most animals, which means I spent years pursuing every report of every poor soul who's dedicated themselves to analyzing the scat of every animal that they could find. And it was incredible work. I'm still really thankful for this scientist who sadly, but understandably has left academia and trying to remember his last name was Matthew something. And his thesis was dedicated to his very patient wife. And his entire thesis was him chasing badgers in the wild and in captivity to try and catch their scat just as it was produced. And these were horrible places and badgers are not friendly animals. And my heart just went out to this young PhD student who did produce the thesis, published it, no one ever read it. I eventually found uh, the thesis and I, I, I reached out to his advisor and they were very surprised anyone had read this thesis on badger scat chasing. But I am so thankful for his work and I, I really wish I could, if he's listening, thank you, Matthew, your work was invaluable. But that was the beginning of me understanding that if you are trying to figure out what gases life, alien life will produce, you'll most likely have to go into the weirdest places on Earth that have strange life that isn't like ours. And these anaerobic environments, like that inside the gut of most animals, were a great first step. But now my plan is to go to swamps where people have seen ghosts um, because 
I think what they may be seeing in these swamps is not ghosts, but it's phosphine igniting. Um, these are called will-o'-the-wisp, our jack-o'-lantern, which are the source of many myths and tales and songs and paintings throughout history. And these are slightly bluish, greenish ghosts that people describe, lights that they describe seeing. And one possibility is that they're blue and green because those are emission wavelengths of phosphine when it ignites. And it may not be phosphine, but other diphosphine, so related molecules. And so my plan now is to actually get out of the office where I don't even have a lab. You know, all my work is connected to distant secret supercomputers on my laptop. And I'm now trying to go all the way to field work in a swamp, trying to catch not just a glimpse, but a sample of a ghost to prove that it's just phosphine doing its thing. And so that's my current plan. I'm happy to share it because if someone wants to scoop me, please do. Um, <laughs> please scoop me. Um, and if you are at all interested, do reach out because I would love to collaborate. You're a real life ghostbuster. <laughs> exactly. And in these places, you know, there's a lot of people keen on it. And when I've tried to contact them, there's a lot of, oh, if you're interested in this, you're going to be interested in this big, Bigfoot, Bigfoot sighting or sighting of, it's not rock, but there's a, a conspiracy theory about some giant bird. I forget what it's called. And I have to say, oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm really not interested in the bird or Bigfoot. I'm only in it for the ghosts and they need to be blue or green. All the other red ghosts you've seen, really not my expertise. Um, but otherwise, I'm really validating all of their suspicions. I also love that you base so much of this research on a thesis. thesis. Absolutely. Absolutely. A thesis of thesis. That's very good. Hope Matthew takes that one. Now, why is your research important? Why should we care if there's alien life? I mean, people are welcome not to care if there's alien life, but that does seem to be a, a concern, a consideration, an occupation of humanity for as long as there are records of us asking questions. The notion of being not alone at a universal scale is, of course, extremely appealing. And there's also a humility to it that I chase and I hope others will. You know, if it is just us, then we must be very, very special. And that seems really silly to me that we're special. There's no reason why we should be special. And so I'm really hoping that in combating our galactic loneliness, we'll combat our galactic ego and that will be a really nice combination of outcomes. Um, and so that's my wish for this work and for my species. Again, a very poetic uh, approach to your work. <laughs> oh, yes. I just want to prove we're average. That's, that's, that's the only thing I want. I want to prove that there's nothing exceptional about us. You clearly love your work. Um, what's the best part of it? Best part is when it works. You know, there's a lot of times where I'm working on quantum chemistry and it all seems a little nuts. You know, there's so much probability that is so different from how I live my life with this at least somewhat reasonable notion that there's a deterministic consequence for the things that I do. 
But then when I do my work in, in, in quantum chemistry, there's, there's just so much uncertainty. And I often do it and I have to cut a lot of corners and I, and I cut so many corners, so many approximations, so many numerical approaches rather than analytical approaches that a part of me, a voice inside me starts thinking, how many corners can you cut before this is just not true anymore? How far from the truth can you deviate in your attempt to just do it before it's just a lie? And then to see this very rough approximation of quantum physical behavior that I've done on my computer with my tiny brain, and then look at spectrum from a honest-to-God star and have them match, you know, this tiny scale that I roughly approximated and this giant mythical uh, space item, and they match, and this coming together of these scales and these, you know, uncertainty, uncertainty, and it all working out, it just blows my mind. I am thankful every time that it works. Um, and it's, and I, and I'm always, it's always a slightly religious experience. And it's when I realized that I thought I knew the science, but really I just believed the science as best I could. And, and clearly with some faith rather than evidence and, and seeing it come together is such a reassuring and inspiring event. Um, so it's, yes, it's when it works. It's like win winning an award. It is every time, every time, you know, I thought that's what methane looked like. And then I looked at a planet that had methane and they match and oh, what a relief. The universe is at peace with itself again. You can say to your data, you like me, you really like me. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now, of course, it's not all sunshine and roses. Um, what's the worst or most challenging part of your work? I would say that other than kind of the normal boredom and frustration every scientist goes through and the procrastination that comes from it and the feeling of guilt and imposter syndrome, the kind of the universal experience of being a, an academic, I think what's hardest is seeing the flaws in academia and how they perpetuate issues that make it harder and harder for junior people to succeed. Um, and that, and, and becoming part of the problem as I do succeed, I think that is what really gives me pause. It's what really makes me think that one day I'll leave and I'll stop trying to figure out the secrets of the universe. Because, you know, seeing awful behavior from senior scientists who should know better, who are safe and tenured and powerful and well-funded, and yet gatekeep work and discredit students and mistreat them and threaten them. And seeing junior scientists feel worthless despite the fact that most science is done on the backs of junior scientists, PhD students and postdocs, and seeing them be devalued every day and seeing institutions bust unions who are just trying to have decent quality of life while producing the science that makes those institutions wonderful. You know, that really, really breaks my heart. 
and I think one day you'll be too much and I'll leave because I can't fight it and uh, and it's too sad and I put so much work into encouraging young people to join astronomy and academia and I often wonder if I'm just setting a trap out for them and so Sadly, it's the senior scientists and the institutions that uphold them that worry me the most. When the science becomes more about the personal glory than about uh, bringing back to the community, um, it can become toxic. Indeed. Almost as toxic as phosphine. I would say more toxic than phosphine. Phosphine eventually reacts away with oxygen and it's an oligo poisoning. But that sort of behavior of scientists and institutions, it passes on. You know, it gets repeated and the cycle of abuse continues and it becomes infrastructural, it becomes systematic. It never reacts away like tox- toxic gas. So I would say that institutions failing to protect and support and pride themselves of um, work that junior scientists do is much more toxic than any gas. Now that's academia uh, as a whole, uh, do you feel like um, astronomy um, as a field is open and welcoming, or is it a little more uh, closed off and insular? I think astronomy um, suffers from the same ills as other academic pursuits. I would say it has a unique um, flaw, unavoidably so, which is there's very little industry to leave to. So if you're a biochemist in, academ- in academia, It may still be problematic in many ways, but when you leave, you could actually do a lot of the research that you might find enjoyable in industry. Um, And astronomy doesn't have that. If you want to discover the secrets of the universe, you can't really do it in industry. And so it's really sad. You have to either put up with it and stay in academia and suffer through it, or Um, you have to stop finding answers to those questions. And that is a really unfair choice and one that I think departments are more than willing to abuse. That's a really interesting observation. I've heard from other people in other fields that um, academia is kind of this oasis that gives you this false sense of security. And when you go into industry, it can be so much worse. Uh, But you make a really good point uh, with uh, the astronomy fields. There's no lifeboat if um, you find yourself in a bad situation. Indeed. And yes, I, most of the time, I'm very inspired by the work that I see in my community and the changes that are being made. But, you know, right now, both Harvard and MIT, right next door, are union busting their own unions, their own graduate student unions as we speak. Um, MIT hasn't even recognized a majority of card signers in their union. And so... It's right next door and I get to watch it happen every day. Them hiring extremely expensive union-busting lawyers that charge crazy money an hour. And it's so distressing to witness this from institutions that should be priding this work. And so I think most days I feel very hopeful about academia, but these days watching this happen in real time, it's hard to trust the people above me. It's funny that these organizations, which we think of as being so progressive in so many ways, often act in very uh, 
petty ways uh, too. I've worked in a number of museums and uh, seen uh, similar behavior, not always uh, personally, but um, there's some well-documented cases of some very famous ones that um, don't practice what they preach. Indeed. And the hypocrisy is really hard to take, you know, because a lot of the love you have for your job is a love for the institution and academia and your community. And it's part of the reason we're willing to do this with very little pay. And so when this is taken away, it is really disheartening to see, you know, Harvard and MIT both pride themselves in being beacons of progressive and intellectual um, good work. And it is really sad to see them behave as the worst of businesses. Now, something that's been equally uh, terrible this past, I guess, two years now, has been COVID. Um, you tend to work in a very virtual realm. So have you been impacted by the pandemic? So I am very lucky that I was always a theoretical scientist. And so my science, my individual science, hasn't been affected strongly you know, I may not be able to travel to the same telescopes as I would normally or same collaborations or conferences, but that's very minor. Um, the main consequence in my personal career has been the kids. So all the outreach work um, that I did before involved working with children, and now I cannot. And the few programs we managed to maintain or adapt to be virtual have clearly really taxed our students who have very stressful lives already in the best of times. And now they have adapted their schoolwork and their lives to COVID and distancing and virtual environments. And now are trying to do research with me and others also virtually. And it has been really tough and really disempowering to see them struggle ever more so that has been by far the hardest. And I don't have many words of advice. If anyone is doing something like this, I have figured out some things that work more or less, but none of it is ideal. And I worry about them all the time. You still sound like a teacher, <laughs> caring about the children. Of course. I mean, any scientist who doesn't care about the next generation will have their science dissipate into the ether with no consequence. It's there's no science that will be finished by the time you're retired. And so someone has to come after you and continue it. And so we need to even selfishly be invested in the next generation of scientists, even if it's not out of the goodness of your heart. It is crucial that we train them and support them and do it well. That's a really good point. It's often in our, our self-interest to be um, altruistic and help others. <laughs> Absolutely. I dare say that's no longer altruism. But if it makes you feel better and more likely to do the right thing, then take it, please. Now, you've mentioned some of the, the challenges of uh, studying and, and progressing through your field. Um, did you receive anyone or any inspiration from anyone um, or any uh, support? So I often am asked, you know, who I admire. And sometimes I get young people saying they admire me. And I always push back very hard on both notions. When I was younger, I certainly admired scientists whose work I knew and I looked up to, scientists who I thought were inspirational. 
And not 100% of the time, but I would say the majority of time that I got to meet and interact with these admirable role models, they weren't so admirable. Um, most of them were just people, you know, doing their best for some good and bad reasons. Some of them were deplorable and really not good people who became famous through exploiting often junior people under them. And I was so disappointed and I felt so foolish and so childish. And then I realized that the mistake had been partially mine because I'd admired people I didn't know. And you don't know how famous people got to where they are. And you don't know how the scientists who you admire most of the time achieve their science. And, and so my advice for everyone is to fire your role models, admire people who you know, your colleagues who make your life better, your mentors who are generous with their time. Admire yourself when you do good work and support others. Don't admire people you don't know well. Um, at best, they will disappoint you. And at worst, you will learn some horrible truths about what it takes to succeed. And it isn't worth it. And so I do not have role models. I reject them. And I hope I am no one's role model because unless they know me well, um, it would be unwise. And if they know me well, they know I'm flawed and only to be admired in small moments where I do great things for others and not as a whole person. It's funny, I've had the opposite experience um, coming to, to this department here at UBC where I met a bunch of people and many of them were lovely. And it was only after I met them and got to know them as just wonderful people that I realized they've actually done some amazing things. <laughs> and That's great, you can admire them. Yeah. <laughs> that, you can, those you can admire, absolutely. <laughs> Feel free, I encourage you. <laughs> so I feel like it was the opposite experience. <laughs> but yeah, I get to know them as people yes. first. <laughs> yes, I think that's very wise and very healthy. And, and I endorse it wholeheartedly. Now, as a, a professor, do you have any grad students? Um, so I am not a professor yet. I'll be a professor in September next year. Um, and I'll be a professor at Bard College which specifically doesn't have graduate students. So I have some post-bac students and some undergraduate students. And hopefully I will have students uh, that are in secondary schools in the community and also students uh, that are part of the local incarcerated population. And so I'm hoping to have a very diverse and rich group of research students, but no graduate students at all. And the ones I mentor now um, I mentor unofficially, usually, if I'm being honest, by picking up the slack of the senior scientists that should be mentoring them, but are doing something else instead. And how do you select these students to mentor? So it's really hard. Um, selection process, particularly one that feels equitable and effective, is really difficult to implement. Um, so here at Harvard and MIT, where I ran, ran the science research mentoring program, we initially were very keen to just get the, the broadest pool of students possible. 
um, and then try to anonymously select uh, which students would be invited for interviews. But I realized that just doing it all anonymously meant we couldn't account for problems like students that are from schools where they don't have a teacher to support them to help them write a good letter or students whose language spoken at home is in English. And so we now uh, have a first selection process where the, the essays that the students submit as part of the applications are anonymous. And we use that to select our long list of students. So based purely on their ability to describe their interest in scientific tools. But then we add all the demographics that we have access to. Some of them are um, self-identified, uh, like ethnicity, but some we get from the schools, like whether the students are on free and reduced lunches as a proxy for um, house wealth. We also get information about language spoken at home to get a proxy for Im immigrant communities. And we use those demographics um, to pull out of the, the long list um, any students who are of underrepresented groups, any underrepresented group in uh, science. Interestingly, we have been so successful in the recruiting process that in the last few years, we did not have to use gender as one of these because we had so many women apply that they were no longer underrepresented in our pool of applicants. So I removed that as a prioritized demographic. Um, but then these students get guaranteed an interview slot and all the other interview slots are selected based entirely on the um, essay qualities. And from there, we interview them and we try to get a sense for which students would um, thrive and which wouldn't. And that is difficult. I rely on the expertise from local teachers who know students well and often know these students well and don't try to just be... Um, a scientist about it, I do get teachers involved. But it's really hard. That's the short answer. Really hard. But if you get a large enough applicant pool, you can, you can do really good things for um, increasing the how inclusive your group becomes. I love that. I think that's really smart. And yeah, it's, it's true that a blind selection process is rarely truly blind, because like you said, there are those invisible um, factors which you need to correct for. Absolutely. And particularly things like wealth, which is often an invisible um, um, group that is very much discriminated against. But it's a really difficult thing to select for because you can't ask the kids, both because that would be inappropriate and also often they don't know. Um, so having that access to that data through the local council and the schools, which we do, has been really, really helpful and has allowed us to really help kids much more so that they can focus on the program. You're becoming a social scientist as well. <laughs> yes. I mean, you have to be. Otherwise, you ignore so many of the obstacles that um, make it hard for kids to do well. We also pay the kids. We pay them $1,500 a year uh, to do science with us. They have timesheets and some of the funding sources come from the local council. So the kids even get like pen pension plan paperwork and stuff that I have to tell them to ignore because they're 15. Um, but yes, we pay them. We pay them a salary. Good. That's something else that often gets skipped over. 
Yes, and if you don't pay them a salary, there will be a subsect of kids that will have to choose between participating in the program or helping their families out with a job that pays. And I don't want that to be a choice. Now, I think I already know the answer to this, but <laughs> looking to the long term, uh, when you retire, what would you like to have as your legacy? Or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone? Oof, my epitaph. Um, I don't, I haven't thought of that. I, I used to think I want to retire or die after um, phosphine does something cool. <laughs> but I'm ahead of schedule there. But mostly I want to make sure there are more people junior to me doing the sort of work that I'm most fascinated by. So understanding molecules in space. Um, more than one. If I can get more than one, then I have succeeded in the, you know, the Darwinian attitude to scientific thought. And so there's now many students that I've trained to do this. And if even a small fraction of them go into quantum astrochemistry, that is still going to be more than one. And I have passed it on and it's up to them now. And hopefully they'll do it too. And if they're successful, this will grow exponentially. And someday it will be very, I would have made a very small but significant contribution to us finding life beyond Earth. And I will take that. You're a super spreader of passion for science. <laughs> yes. And my, my tombstone could say had a very, very minor contribution towards finding life beyond Earth. Now, my final question for you is a bit of a, a complicated one. Um, I find that with most fields, uh, the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely different by the time that they retire. Um, everything is changing so quickly. So where do you see um, the astronomies going? And what advice do you have for young pe people to anticipate these changes and prepare for them? My advice to young people is to not be too focused. I was extremely focused. I really knew I wanted to astronomy and I wanted to know planets and I worked really hard at that. And I've succeeded somewhat, but very often I find myself thinking, I did not learn enough biology to do this work. I didn't learn enough chemistry to do this work. I haven't even learned enough physics to do this work because I was so focused that I ignored all the ancillary sciences. But more so, so much of the work that I do does have a thread of poetry and does have a thread of ethics. And I wish I hadn't dismissed the humanities courses in my high school career. And I certainly wish I had taken some in college and I didn't. And so now I spend a large fraction of my time collaborating and, and, and chasing artists and musicians that, and lawyers that can help me make sense of it all. And that has been lovely. It's part of the reason I love astrobiology is because it definitely takes a village. But I don't think I benefited from all that focus. And when my career feels unstable, either because of my immigration status or my frustration with union busting institutions, I realize that I really don't have a plan B. You know, I never really considered a career outside mine. And that can be really, really scary. And so 
I see students now really worried about not having a dedicated focus that they can really hone in on. And I just want to say that that is often a flawed method of thinking. And the students that I've interacted with, they have come from so many fields and they've contributed so much. And I am so thankful for them. If all the students that I worked with had followed the same path as mine, my science would be terrible. And so there are many ways into things that you find passion for. So in the meantime, don't overly focus would be my advice. And even that could be wrong. I don't have the statistical background to tell you, but at least that. Definitely don't worry that you don't know what you want to do. Well, I think you're certainly making up for it now, uh, taking on you know education and community outreach and casual poetry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, doing my very best to become a Renaissance woman late in life. I, I think you're succeeding. <laughs> Those are all the questions that I have for you for today. Um, is there anything that I missed or anything that you want to add before I let you go? No, this was a wonderful time. Well, thanks for sharing your passion and your wisdom and uh, your stories. It's been a real uh, eye-opener. And and yeah, I do hope that you find um, something out there, even if it is just toxic grass. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, for all of us, I hope I do. Or someone does. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.